Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to read our text this morning. It's going to be these five verses that we find here in the first part of this. And I want to speak to you this morning on joying and beholding your order. Joying and beholding your order. So we're going to read a few of these verses here, and then we'll jump in and dive into this text. Uh, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 1. The Word of God says, For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and into all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order, and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Paul, through the perfect inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God here, pens this letter to, uh, we see in chapter 1 and verse number 2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae. Now, he addresses and writes this letter, actually being in it while he's in a Roman prison. He calls Epaphras, in chapter 1, verse 7, their faithful minister. He says, as you also heard or learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. And so I believe that uh, Epaphras there was the pastor of this church who was bringing word to Paul about the faith that he uh, that uh, had been established in the uh, lives of these believers there in Colossae. Now, writing back to the Colossians, God uses Paul to, de- to deliver the uh, text that we have this morning. And we're going to look at three truths that are communicated from God to these people through Paul and the ins- perfect inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But these three truths we're going to find communicated in our text. Number one is uh, in chapter 2, verse 2, we find an excellent desire. We find an excellent desire. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and in all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. So the first part of this desire that Paul had was to see these believers knit together in love. Um, Now we're getting ready to have man camp coming up November 6th. If you're not familiar with what man camp is, we're going to get all our He-Man Woman Haters Club. We're getting all our guys together on November 6th, that Saturday, and we're going to teach each other how to build a fire and um, just do guy stuff. And Knitting is not going to be one of the sessions that we have there. Um, That's not allowed at man camp. But what Paul desires for them is that their hearts would be comforted being knit together in love. And this knit, how many of you ladies have ever knitted something? Okay. No guys, don't raise your hands, please. When you knit, to knit means to unite as threads by needles to connect in a kind of network. And you know what? This is what happens for believers when they're plugged into a local church. When you come here and there are different uh, things going on in your life that are frustrating or depressing. Um, and, and, you know, some of them, you know, in the life of a teenager can range from, you know, their shirt wasn't clean. So they had to wear a, um, a dirty band shirt over to, you know, much more tragic things that can happen in a young person's life. And, and so there are all t- kinds of things that can happen in our lives but you and I, our lives will be interwoven. They'll be knit together by God as you and I love one another and bear each other's burdens. So I know that there are many of you in here that you have found 
that you've, your heart has been comforted because something has happened in your life that you shared with another believer or, and they let you know that they were praying for you and, and your lives were interwoven. You have different social backgrounds. You may have different ethnic backgrounds, um, different intelligence backgrounds. You guys, we all come from different backgrounds, but it's amazing how you can take a local church and have just a vast array of people that are knit together in love because of what the Holy Spirit of God does in our lives. You know, you think about, um, and she probably hates us mentioning her, but Valinyard this week, I got a call at 11 o'clock at night. My mom uh, said, did you see with Valinyard in a wreck? And, and my heart sung, my heart dropped because you hear those words and we weren't sure of the details. And I had turned on the, the news to find, um, uh, you know, they, I just caught the tail end of it. So I didn't know how, how she was doing. So we called the family and Aaron let me know that she was able to get out of the hospital that night. And, uh, my heart was comforted to know that she was okay. And so, um, you know, if our lives weren't interwoven in this local church, you know, we might not have the same care for one another that we would outside of this, uh, of this place. So Paul desired that for the Colossian believers. He wanted their hearts to be comforted, being knit together in love. And let me say this, you and I, do you realize how many people look for comfort in this world outside of Jesus Christ, outside of a local church? And that comfort that they find is going to be short-lived. And many times it's um, not going to bring the comfort and love and fulfillment that they need that, that they would find in Christ. So he has this desire here that their hearts would be comforted, being knit together. Um, he also says that he wants them to, uh, that their hearts would be comforted unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding. Unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding. Now, what's cool is if we go to Colossians chapter 1 and look at verse number 9, he has already established what this understanding is. In verse 9, he says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So Paul says, I'm going to pray for you guys that you would have a spiritual understanding of God's will in your life. In knowing and living God's will, it really does take a spiritual understanding, doesn't it? If you follow the, the philosophy and you follow the counsel of this world, that is going to take you in, in a completely opposite direction from the way that God's will will take you in your life. And so you may make decisions in your life that your family doesn't understand, that your coworkers don't understand. Teenagers, you may have friends in band or basketball or this or that, that when you serve Christ and you make the decisions that you do in your life, they don't get it. But that's okay because we know that the, following the will of God does take a spiritual understanding that we get through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. So he's going to pray that for them. But notice in the second chapter, he says that you would be comforted unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding. There is a full assurance. It, it, there is a blessing that surpasses anything money could ever buy you in this world. There's a, there's a richness to that of knowing God's will for your life and being fully assured that what you are doing is God's plan. And how many of you would say, honestly, those times when you go to follow God's plan, many times it starts with that. It starts with faith. It starts with a step of faith. You think God wants me to be in Awana with kids and I don't, I don't know if I could do well with kids. And you take that step of faith and you find as God blesses that ministry and uses you in the lives of those young people, 
there you begin to get that full assurance that what you are doing is the will of God because you stepped out by faith with the Lord, right? That happens in our lives. Well, there's a richness, there's a blessing that comes when you and I obey the will of God. So um, for you teenagers, you know, the the, the speakers yesterday uh, challenged you guys to live for the Lord. And as you do that, I know that you'll find a confidence in God that as you've witnessed to your friends for Christ. And and many of you guys brought friends uh, to the youth conference. I know that because that was the will of God for you to do that and invite your friends and witness to your generation for Christ... I know that you had a richness and a blessing thinking, man, I'm, I'm doing what God wants me to. This is so cool. And so as you and I follow God's plan for our lives, there is a richness that this world could never offer. There is a blessing that money cannot buy in, in you living the life that God has for your life. So we have the riches of, his, uh, of the full assurance of understanding. Um, and think about that. Think of what people pay for counseling whether it be for depression, uh, for finances, uh, you go down the list. Think about the money that people pour out for counseling when right here in this book we have all of the answers that we need for life. And so the richness of God's word and the richness of knowing his will is unsurpassed. And then he says that it, within this desire, he wants them to, their hearts to be knit together. He wants them to have the, the richness or the riches of understanding the, w- the will of God. And then he wants them to acknowledge the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. And again, he's already explained to us what this mystery is. Look in Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 25. Paul says, Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God will make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so Paul desires that they would acknowledge this mystery of God. What's the mystery? Christ is in you. When you and I acknowledge this mystery, and it really is a mystery, isn't it? To think this morning that Being a believer in Christ, and what I mean by that is that you have come to a point in your life where you realize that you're a sinner, that your sin is just as bad as anybody else's, that your sin has separated you from a holy God, and that in your sin, you and I are condemned to a Christless, literal hell forever, for all eternity. But that we've come to the point where we've realized that because Jesus Christ died for us on the cross, was buried and rose again, that he paid the penalty that you and I owe for our sin. And so our sins can be washed away. They can be forgiven. But only through, they sang about it this morning, the blood of Jesus Christ. And you've come to the place, we're talking about being a believer, where you have trusted in Christ and his sacrifice alone to take away your sins. Not trusting, you know, baptism or what you put in the offering or how many Bible verses you've memorized, but trusting in Christ alone. So if you're a believer, the Bible says that Christ is in you. If not, I think it says in Romans, I think it's in Romans that says this, that uh, I know that it says this, I think it's in Romans. It says that, it, that if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're none of His. That you have the Spirit of Christ in you, except you be reprobates. So the, Christ is in you, and Paul wants them to acknowledge that, because when they do, look at chapter 3 and verse 5. Look what happens when we acknowledge that Christ is in us. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, he says, mortify means put to death 
your members which are upon the earth. All right, so he's going to list these sins for us. These are the things that we're supposed to put to death in our flesh. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. But now put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. He also says in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. So he wants these, these Colossian believers to acknowledge that Christ is in them and allow him to sit on the throne in their lives. And, and say, here, Lord, what decisions do you want me to make? And he wants them to put off this old man and put on the new man and live out this life in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as they do that, um, God will bless and use their lives. So there's an excellent desire that Paul has for them. But notice, secondly, our second truth we're going to look at this morning. He exposes a danger. There's an exposed danger. Look at verse 4. He has just told them in verse 3 that in Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you want to know God, if you want to know truth, you must know Christ. Our world, it, people in our world search for answers. Uh, you know, the, Google is now a word. You can, that's actually a verb. I'm going to Google it. You, know, you can actually say that because you can search for anything online. And people search for answers. They search for truth. They read books and they try and be filled up with wisdom. But if you do that apart from Christ... The Bible says that you will be ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So as you and I look for truth, we will find it hidden in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So now he's going to expose the danger. Verse 4, And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. You see, the Colossians, we're going to find here in a minute, that, man, they were doing what God wanted them to. But there was a danger that they were going to be confronting there was a danger that was going to be presented to them and that was beguilement through enticing words what does it mean to beguile it means to delude or deceive we're familiar with this term in genesis chapter 3 he says in genesis three thirteen, you guys remember adam and eve sinned against the lord and they say this about satan and the lord said unto the woman what is this that thou hast done and the woman said the serpent beguiled me and i did eat and then Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So two other places in which that word beguiled is used, and, and speaking of the same event, where Satan tricked Eve. He lied to her. He beguiled her. He deceived her. Uh, turn with me. Hold your place here in Colossians and look at Joshua chapter 9. We're going to read... Uh, a, an account here from the Old Testament that again uses this word and helps us to define it. Joshua chapter 9. We're going to look at this, this term beguile because the Colossians are doing so well. But Paul knows there's a danger that's going to enter into their lives and they need to be aware of it. They need to be alert. Joshua chapter 9. And let's look in verse 3. The scripture says, And when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done unto Jericho and to Ai, they did work wilily, 
and went and made as if they had been ambassadors and took old sacks upon their asses and wine bottles, old and rent and bound up. So here's the deal. Joshua and the children of Israel have destroyed Jericho. They have destroyed Ai and Gibeon's next in line. And the Gibeonites look at what the deliverance that God gave to the Israelites and they realize that they cannot stand against the Jehovah. They cannot stand against the God of the Israelites. There is no one that can stand against them. And the Gibeonites, they put a little plan together. They think, somehow we've got to enter into league and make a treaty with these guys, or they are going to kill us. You saw what happened to, get to Ai. You saw what happened to Jericho. We can't stand against their God. So, in verse 4 it says, They did work wilily. Where else is that word used? The wiles of the devil, right? They're, they're, they're beginning to, to format this plan that would be trickery. Verse 5 says, and old, They got old shoes and clouded upon their feet and old garments upon them, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua unto the camp at Gilgal and said unto him and to the men of the country, We have come from a far country. Now therefore make ye a league with us. And the men of Israel said unto the Hivites, Peradventure you dwell among us, and how shall we make a league with you? And they said unto Joshua, We are thy servants. And Joshua said unto them, Who are ye, and from whence come ye? And they said unto him, From a very far country thy servants are come, because of the name of the Lord thy God. For we have heard the fame of him and all that he did in Egypt. Enticing words, right? Paul says they're going to come to you with enticing words. Joshua knows that they're supposed to take out Gibeon. And he's... He's a little bit leery of this plan because these guys show up and they look like they have traveled from a very far country. They've got moldy bread and they're showing it to Joshua saying, look, we're really, really we Man, we came from a long journey. My back, my back really hurts. And they're showing the moldy bread and they made it appear on the outside. That they had come from a very far country, so they made it appear on the outside. But it didn't line up, line up with reality. And so the story goes on, and Joshua, man, they, they, they foolishly make this treaty with their neighbors. And, he, and he's kind of asking them the question, and, and he knows what could happen if they made a treaty that was with someone that was close to them. And so he, he thinks about it, but they foolishly make this decision to get in the league and sign this treaty with these Gibeonites. Notice with me down on the passage, he says in verse number Verse number uh, eight, uh, 16, we'll look at verse 16. And it came to pass at the end of three days after they had made a league with them that they heard that they were their neighbors and that they dwelt among them. So they had tricked them and they hear about it three days later that these guys, had, it was all a sham. And the children of Israel journeyed and came into their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon and uh, this place and Beeroth and Kirjath Jerim. And the children of Israel smote them not, because the princes of the congregation had sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel, and the congregation murmured against the princes. But all the princes said unto all the congregation, We have sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel, now therefore we may not touch them. This we will do to them, we will let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath which we swear unto them. And look at verse 22. And Joshua called for them, and he spake unto them, saying, Wherefore have ye beguiled us? saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us. They made an appearance on the outside that was not the reality. And within Christianity, there is so much that is put on as a front. There is so much that that's, flies under the banner of Christianity that's not Christianity. And Paul says we need to be aware of that. 
And uh, let me say it this way. Look back at Colossians, at our text. In Colossians chapter 2, in verse 4, he says, In this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. In verse 8, he says, Beware lest any man spoil you through what... How would they be beguiled? Through philosophy, vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. You know how this world wants to beguile teenagers? They say, come on, do this. It'll be fun. Come on, do this. Uh, just, just once. I mean, you're not going to do it the rest of your life. Just one time. You know how they, spe- they beguile young people? Say, uh, you can live for God later. I mean, just right now, I mean, have fun right now because you've got your whole life ahead of you in this world and Satan will lie to you guys. And you adults in here, Satan will try to beguile you through philosophy, the philosophy of this world. I can't believe your pastor preaches on that. You guys really think that and that's what the Bible says? Well, when you look at our position, our biblical position on salvation, the fact that the Bible says, and there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. This world thinks we are absolute bigots for believing the word of God. But here's the deal. We love people enough to tell them the truth that if they trust in anything other than Christ, that is not sufficient for heaven. The only sufficiency that we have is of Christ and the sacrifice that he paid in full when he died for us on the cross, was buried and rose again. And so we love people enough to tell them that, but the worldly philosophy will not give that to you. So they have philosophy. They have vain deceit. They have the tradition of men. You know, uh, in, in the rudiments of the world, maybe there's something at work. Maybe there's a policy at work that you have that would go against Scripture. Or maybe it, try, people try and encourage you, hey, if you, did, if you just kind of did this and shirked your work here or there, man, you'd look really good in the eyes of the boss, and that would help you get that, that promotion. And the ways of this world to cut corners and, and try and uh, make other people look bad, to elevate yourself, the ways of this world will beguile you. They'll make it look fun. They'll make it look like this is what you have to do to get ahead. But it's just deceit and it doesn't line up with reality. So Paul gives them here. um, He he gives them the desire and talks to them about that. He gives them an an exact. uh, He exposes the danger for them. But then lastly, he gives them an exact demonstration. He talks about their exact demonstration. Look at verse number five. He says, for though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joining and beholding your order and the steadfastness of. Of your faith in Christ. So he is absent from them, right? He's in a Roman jail cell right now. But he says that he is able, because of what he has heard from Epaphras, he is joying and beholding their order and the steadfastness of their faith. Hold your place here in Colossians and look at some of the disorder that Paul was familiar in dealing with. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 17. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not that you may that you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you. And I partly believe it for there must be also heresies among you that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, every one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you, and shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. Now he goes on to, to talk specifically 
about a place where their order was not correct. And that order was in the Lord's Supper. And I, I won't take the time to go through it today. Um, Pastor has done this at length. And, and if uh, you're visiting with us today and you like more information about that, we can get you the, uh, the audio from those messages. But look down in verse number 34 with me. He says, And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. So Paul was familiar with churches that were disorderly. And this, this church at Corinth, right? We know they were carnal. They were fleshly. They had, he says, divisions. They had heresies in the church. They were observing. They were, uh, whatever they were doing, it wasn't the Lord's Supper. And so he corrects that and he sets it in order. He says, I'm going to set, I'm setting this in order now. And the rest of it, I'm going to set in order when I come. That probably wouldn't have been a fun service to be in when Paul got there to set those things in order. He also tells Titus, in Titus chapter 1, he says, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. So in this church, there were some things that were lacking, they were wanting. And he says, go there and set them in order. But we find in, Coloss- in Colossae, this church, he says, I'm sitting here in jail. I'm chained to this Roman soldier, writing this to you. And I started thinking about the report that I've heard from you guys. And you are set in order. Paul didn't have to come up with a, he, he didn't have to take the emotion and take the, the painstaking time through the inspiration of God to write out to them everything that they need that needed to be corrected because they were already set in order. And I don't know about you, but I believe that I'm part of a church here that is set in order, that's set in order in their leadership and, and, and most importantly, in their doctrine, that we have a doctrine that is set in order. And there are people within Christianity that the last thing on their mind is doctrine. That that's such a divisive thing. Well, Paul says that it's good because it needs to be set in order. The scriptures say that uh, let all things be done decently and in order. And we find here Paul says that he was joying and beholding that while he was in a jail cell. All he could think about was, man, those people line up doctrinally. I mean, there's there's no heresy there. there. There's no division. Those people aren't backbiting. That is... That's such a joy in a jail cell. They were a joy and and impacted his life that way. Then not only was he joying in beholding their order, but the steadfastness of their faith in Christ. We don't know at length. We don't know specifically what challenged their faith individually. And in here this morning, every one of you, just this past week, your faith has been challenged differently than the person that you're sitting next to. But your faith has been challenged. And what Paul saw in these, in these believers is that their faith had been challenged, but that they stood steadfast in their faith. And, you know, we asked the question, what would it take for you to stop serving the Lord? What would it take for you to stop coming to Sunday school and getting under the teaching of the word of God? What would it take for you to miss this or that? Or you know, what would it take for you to, to not be in discipleship? What would it take for you to not be involved in the service? So get in and serve the Lord. And if you are serving the Lord, continue in that. Because that, for Paul, that was a huge help to this minister as he sat in a jail cell. And notice this. Look at the influence that he had. Hold your place here in Colossians. And look at the little book Philemon, right before the book of Hebrews. Book of Philemon, you'll find it right after Titus, sandwiched between Titus and right before the book of Hebrews. Just one chapter in this book. In Philemon, verse 10, Paul writes here under the inspiration of the Spirit, he says, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten 
in my bonds. Interesting. I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. Look back with me at Colossians chapter 4. Paul, in this jail cell, was willing enough to serve the Lord that he was giving people the gospel while he sat there. You know, Paul, what are you doing in jail? It was Paul complaining. Was he griping? Was he wishing that he could be somewhere else? He was leading people to Christ. And look at this, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 7. All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that he might know your state and comfort your hearts, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They shall make known unto you all things which are done here. I don't know the timeline of when the encouragement came to Paul and when he led Onesimus to Christ. But think about sitting in a jail cell and instead of having to write, oh man, these guys are so unordered. They're out of order doctrinally. Instead of sitting there thinking, man, these these believers are just falling out of the faith. They're turning their backs on the Lord. Instead of sitting there thinking that, he got to sit there and think, these, oh, those guys at Colossae, when you taught them and you preached the word of God, it, it was changing their lives. And, and they're set in order and, I don't have to go and rip them for the, like the observing the Lord's Supper the wrong way. I, they're living for Christ and they're believing the word of God. And he was so encouraged by that. I don't know the timeline of whether that came before or after he led Onesimus to Christ. But do you think there might have been other people that Paul led to the Lord? That God used this church at Colossae to be an encouragement and a blessing and a help to him. And you know, as you and I stay set in order in this church, as you and I are steadfast in our faith, we will impact this generation with the gospel of Christ. And I got to tell you, man, you guys are a huge encouragement to our pastor as he looks at how you've grown doctrinally and you've grown in discipleship. And we have people serving in Awana. And, 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 you know, I was just thinking about this today with our teenagers. We're teaching them right now in Sunday school, the, our, our Baptist distinctives. I don't want a single one of them to graduate high school and not know why they're a Baptist or not care that they're a Baptist. And what was amazing is I went back and looked at Sunday school curriculum I had from 12, 13 years ago from Dodie New teaching my class. And you know what we had? Baptist distinctives. And you know what I hope that in 12 years from now, whoever's teaching that class in there is teaching Baptist distinctives. And that we continue to reproduce young people that have a love for Christ and a knowledge of why in the world they're a Baptist and if it's even important. And beyond that, having a faith and a knowledge of Christ. And, and so we are a huge encouragement um, to our pastors, we follow in those things. But think of the impact that as you're a blessing and you're an encouragement to your pastor, think of the people that God is going to continue to use him to influence and give the gospel. And if Paul were to look at our church today, if the Lord Jesus Christ were to look at our church today, would he be joying and beholding the steadfastness of our faith and that we're set in order? I believe that he would. And so, man, continue in the faith. The Bible says, be therefore steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord.